This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with returning guest Ken McLeod, in which we delve more deeply into the nature of the vertical and horizontal dimensions of life, what this means in the context of spiritual practice, the nature of transaction as the currency of the horizontal realm, how we might relate to a spiritual practice in non-transactional terms, and what it means to say that a spiritual path is a way of living. This episode is another installment in an extended conversation that we have been having with Ken over the last couple of years. After learning Tibetan, Ken McLeod translated for his principal teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, and helped to develop Rinpoche's centers in North America and Europe. In 1985, Kalu Rinpoche authorized Ken to teach and placed him in charge of his Los Angeles center. Faced with the challenges of teaching in a major metropolis, Ken began exploring different methods and formats for working with students. He moved away from both the teacher center model and the minister church model and developed a consultant client model. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org. He is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, the Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. Ken McLeod, welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. Well, it's good to have you back, even if we decide um, to make this the inaugural um, example of uh, the vertical dimension, a new potential <laughs> name for this show. But that would be appropriate because that is to be the subject um, that we're going to grill you on mercilessly today. Oh, <laughs> what a pleasant surprise. <laughs> exactly. So maybe, maybe to get started, since uh, your recent uh, newsletter uh, to the uh, Unfettered Mind organization uh, discussed the horizontal and the vertical. So just to frame the conversation, maybe you could uh, lay out how you understand those dimensions and their relevance to uh, spiritual practice, which we'll unpack subsequently. Well, it's interesting you should start there because <clears throat> I've received an, a lot of response to that newsletter, uh, including some <laughs> severe criticism from a couple of colleagues. <laughs> For the way that I use the word vertical. So uh, even the word, uh, the vertical dimension is uh, used in a lot of different ways. Uh, and uh, so the way that I'm using it is to differentiate between uh, a focus in life, which uh, you know, we could call the social or the conventional, you know, living your life, uh, family, uh, friends, work, uh, organization of society, um, a lot of the arts, not necessarily all of the arts, athletics, competition, all, you know, just all the things that take place in life. 
And then uh, and that's the and that's the non-vertical. That's, that's the, the horizontal. That's the horizontal. So it's it's like the the plane on which we live our lives, uh, and we have to navigate it and uh, figure things out. And uh, it's a little unfair to reduce it to two dimensions, but you know we only have three to play with. So, and then the vertical is where you are moving into a different relationship with all of that so that you aren't caught by the same habitual patterns, you aren't caught up in the in just the, the, the turmoil and confusion and chaos of life, because life is pretty full of turmoil and confusion and chaos, even the more peaceful lives. And <clears throat> you're <clears throat> cultivating a relationship with that. So, uh, And that leads to a different kind of experience, and an experience where you... Uh, have a degree of freedom that is not um, understood or even available or conceptualized within the horizontal. And one way to uh, characterize this, uh, one of my students uh, who is a uh, minor mover and shaker in Hollywood uh, studied with me for a short time and then went on to study with uh, Suzaki Roshi, who's a very strict Zen teacher. Uh, but he said the most valuable thing that he learned from st- studying with me was what he learned through just straight breath meditation practice that his thoughts and feelings were not reality. And that's the kind of thing that I refer to as a movement to the vertical. Now, I don't use the vertical to mean one state. I mean, it is a different dimension, so that there are different degrees to it, or there's a spectrum. So you get into really high-level vertical stuff, you're basically talking about mysticism. But I feel that anybody who pursues almost any discipline deeply enough will at some point start to move into the vertical because of the demands of the discipline. So let me ask a couple questions in terms of how I think about the vertical. There, there is a distinction that comes up sometimes of the exterior world and the interior world, and that feels like there's some resonance there. Maybe not a hundred percent, but um, as long as you're moving out of psychological framework, yes. Okay. And so then the the other one, which is uh, maybe uh, more precise, is the distinction between the phenomenal and the noumenal. So the phenomenal is really about the contents of our experience, whereas the noumenal might be thought of as the quality of our experience. And it's, uh, I'm not sure if the quality is the right word there, but uh, a psychological arising is still phenomenal in that there's a, there's an object of uh, consciousness. There's a feeling state or a mental state or a body state or a combination of those and that's that's still phenomenal in the sense that I mean phenomenal versus noumenal whereas what you're talking about as a uh, a shift in perspective if you will or a shift in relationship doesn't have the same object uh, characterization as the contents it has more of a relational characteristic and so that starts to feel to me like it, it's the subject-object uh, duality starts to melt away, and there's some, there's something else present. Certainly, as you move up the vertical dimension, uh, 
or what I'm calling the vertical dimension, uh, subject and uh, object duality, um, both subject and object become phenomena in your parlance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and because of that, because both subject and object can be experienced as phenomena, then <clears throat> that means that there is a knowing which isn't dependent on subject-object. Now, I don't... I, I've, I've come across the term noumenal, and I think you said it comes from Kant or something like that. I'm not I'm exactly sure, sure, sure. where... where uh, I, 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 I think I first encountered with... Uh, I don't know how to say this name, Tyler de Chardin. Ah, okay. I, I, haven't, I haven't found the noumenal... What I don't like about the vocabulary is it makes an object out of yeah. uh, something which I don't think um, I, I, I don't think it's the best way of talking. I don't think it's the best vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I've, I've written this book and just completed this book on the um, on Badriana. And one of the ways that I find myself talking about this aspect of, uh, or this quality of experience in human life is a knowing in which subject and object have not been separated. So, so um, when I was first introduced to an attempt at a description of the ver- what you're calling the vertical, my teacher said um, a certain slippery something. <laughs> and, uh, and he was saying that tongue-in-cheek, of course, but, but it also conveys something about the tendency of the mind to latch onto any, the product, if, if that's the right word, of any attempt to go in the vertical direction. Is it, would you agree with that? Yes, <clears throat> I would. I, I'd put in slightly different words. Mm-hmm that uh, there is a a tenacious tendency to objectify all experience. Mm -hmm. And so you... And I think actually this plagues uh, people who write about mysticism because in doing so they are objectifying that which isn't really an object. Right. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And and that's that's the... I mean, that's all difficulty with this whole conversation because yeah. everything you framed in words here, uh, uh, even to say a thinking that is uh, uh, prior to the subject object Actually, distinction. I, I, I said no. Uh, no, sorry. Not a sorry, you're right. A knowing, <laughs> thank you. A knowing, but that, that still uh, objectifies that slippery something. Yes. But, but, but that's all in order to have a conversation like that. I mean, we have to understand there's limitations of language, and language is pointing in a direction of a, a quality of experience yeah. that we can become receptive to. So it's not that, the, that we're objectifying it so much as we are pointing to something. Yes, but the human tendency is that you have this experience. In order to talk about it, you give it a name of some form. You know, some right. some name, and we have a whole list of names in, in my Buddhist training. I mean, like, probably, I can think of almost a dozen off the top of my head, uh, and there are many more. And then people start building systems around each of uh, those names, and now you get into something that actually is taking you away from the experience rather than pointing you to it. 
And th- this just is, happens again and again and again through the course of history. Yeah, and it's clearly not just Buddhism either. So <laughs> Exactly. Um, um, this slippery quality um, is also a descriptor of just this just this phenomena, uh, phenomenon that you're describing. I kind of like this tongue-in-cheek, a slippery quality. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so, so moving forward with this, um, when we, t- t- I'm, I'm interested actually why you would get uh, pushback on the distinction between uh, vertical oh, and horizontal. The, the, the pushback was very specific. Uh, the people who push back on me reserve the vertical to uh, refer to a high-level shift in the way you experience. So they have a very specific uh, meaning for it. And this is another thing that happens. Uh, And on the other end of the spectrum, if you wish, I mean, uh, I chose the word vertical because it comes up in uh, Schlotterdijk's work he talked, mm-hmm. especially in his uh, book, You Must Change Your Life. Mm-hmm. He, he, he talks about the vertical a lot in a rather strange way, but then he's German, writing German philosophy, so it explains a lot. Schumacher talks about it in his book, uh, A Guide to the Perplexed. Uh, it's a term that's used in the context of the Gurdjieff work, and Uspensky goes on about it and ha- builds a whole elaborate system for, uh, right, about but, it. But they also understand. <clears throat> the uh, symbolism of the cross in Christianity as a demonstration of the vertical and the horizontal. And the horizontal. And and then I came across a person who uses it as uh, theverticaldimension.com. I just thought I would check it out. (laughs) And she is a um, life business coach who's drawing on Gurdjieffian perspectives uh, for this uh, you know it's just like darn <laughs> <laughs> that's why I, that's why I checked it uh, and I, went, I think you can get vertical dimension vertical dimension dot org doesn't exist uh, but but then I saw that okay so it's being commodified or commercialized by at least one person right. and such is the, the fate of things these days so there's a uh, a variety of uses, and ignoring all of the engineering and the other and scientific uh, applications or uses of the term. So, so, so this um, invites to me the question of degree. You were you were essentially speaking. I, I, of I, I, I mean, the image that I have is you have a plane, and and this may be partially due to my mathematical background, but you have a plane, that's the horizontal, and, and right. which we talk about life. And then you have a, uh, a third dimension, which is coming at perpendicular to the plane. You can come up above it. And that's, what I, that's what I'm, how I'm looking at the vertical. And, and it, it's not a single state. It's a whole spectrum. Right. Or, or, or to visualize it, it need not be like a two-dimensional cross with a single vertical axis but it could there could be many uh, vertical axes emerging from the plane is, well, that, not, is that fair well image yes but that puts us immediately into multi-dimensions yeah well How so? well you have you have if you have if you have a plane and then you have the dimension up now if you have something that's 
perpendicular to all of those, now you're into four dimensions. Yeah. And then if you have another dimension that's perpendicular... Well, 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 I'm, I'm not enough of a mathematician. Okay, I mean, this you. is exactly the problem you get to in relativity <laughs> yeah, theory well. and also into quantum, dynamic, uh, quantum, quantum mechanics because in relativity theory, to talk about relativity theory, it's a, 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 a space-time is actually a four-dimensional thing. Right. You know, and, well. and it's the argument that it's a four-dimensional mani- a compact four-dimensional manifold and what we experience is time is this movement through the manifold. Right, but that, that's one of the uh, actual uh, uh, philosophical critiques of uh, the relativity theory is yeah. that it's objectified time, which is something that cannot be objectified. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, fair enough. And then in quantum mechanics, you move from wave equations which had real components to wave equations which have complex components, and that immediately puts you into a four-dimensional framework. Yeah, um, okay. So... so <clears throat> Well, let's I, 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 I enjoy the image, the metaphor well, let's, that let's, I put forward, but I'm, I'm sorry to hear you shoot it down. I, wa- I want to I wanna bring this back. To, Immediately. I want to bring this back to three dimensions uh, for a moment. And okay. uh, uh, when I look at the characterization of the vertical and the hermetic tradition, the vertical axis is... Um, depending on which tradition, basically has this uh, axis of the stars and the earth, whereas the horizontal um, is, in a sense, the realm of cyclic time. It's the realm of action, of things happening, of process, of uh, evolution and uh, you know change and things like that. And one of the things I think is important in that understanding is that the vertical doesn't exclude deep degrees of embodiment. In other words, if we go into the earth, we can be present to the phenomenal in a way that's different or or qualitatively different than, let's say, being unconscious and mechanical. One can be deeply present to the phenomenal and yet still be on that vertical axis. I I would agree with you. I'd I'd actually go a step further. And uh, my own experience when I... Circumstances of my spiritual career force me to pay attention to my body in a way that, because there's a tendency, you know, you talk about going up and up and up, right? And, and you you think, okay, you can transcend the body, and my body gave me some not so gentle reminders that that actually wasn't a good idea. Basically, it said, you can go and get enlightened if you want, but I'm not coming. And uh, and then I discovered that there's a whole depth of experience available in the body, but that's still the vertical dimension. Yes. And, and, I, yeah. and I think that's important. It's very, it is important. Yeah, it's important because I think when people hear this, you know, people are like, they say, well, you're just abstracting. And that's not what, no, we're, that's no, not no, what we're doing. No, the more deeply you go in, the more deeply you go into any experience, you, you arrive at some, for, uh, some aspect of the vertical. You know, and, and, and it doesn't really matter what it is. If you just and so if you go into sensations and you just keep looking and, and, and opening to the sensations arise, then you start to form a different relationship with those sensations. You aren't caught by them the same way. Uh, they inform you in different ways, and all of that is, to me, a kind of movement in the vertical dimension. Right, and. And it doesn't preclude, um, as you said, 
mystical uh, uh, ascension, as it were, or a uh, a relationship to yeah. the, the world as a whole, but I'll does it you, exclude the relationship to the body? I'll tell you what it does preclude. It precludes a utilitarian perspective. Expand on that, if you will. You can't use it for anything. Ah. So that's, that's just a... Uh, an interesting point, and it's a, and it gets tricky immediately because there are consequences of pursuing the vertical. It seems to me you, you may disagree, but um, um, if you make those an object of pursuit separate from the pursuit of the vertical, then you get into trouble. You do. You get into trouble quite quickly. So so. Oh, this is interesting because the the in a way utilitarian understanding or definition is about a self getting something, and as you the intuition of the vertical, as you've said earlier or alluded to earlier, is an intuition or an experience of the emptiness of that self, and consequently the nature of utilitarianism has to change because that which is utilitarian in ourselves has to be the domain of the horizontal because it is completely orthogonal or at right angles to this uh, intuition of no self. And and by the way, before we proceed, I just want to stress that, that I don't think you can and certainly I and I think Stuart would not assert that there is a value judgment relative of vertical relative to horizontal uh-huh. in one sense necessary and value in the sense of good bad straightforward uh, oh, we're not, yes and very definitely uh, it's not about good uh, and bad good versus evil or anything like that the horizontal isn't evil right that's that's <clears throat> that's that's the plan uh, and I, I just want to stress that for listeners because I think there and might the, be a tendency for, for that. Well, there has been a tendency around. historically yeah. hmm. uh, for the horizontal to be condemned by people who put value on the uh, vertical. And, and conversely, people who value the horizontal condemn, suppress uh, those who put value on the vertical. And actually, that has reached the point sometimes they kill each other. Right, but would you, I mean... At, at its root, the distinction of good and bad is uh, lands us back in this uh, utilitarian uh, modality. Yes, and so that's important to understand that linkage because the moment I say the vertical is good and the horizontal is bad, I've entered a transactional or a, a utilitarian frame of mind, which by its very nature is horizontal. Exactly. So, what is that? What is that movement? What is that uh, 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 fault mode? Well, I I think you're identifying a very important point here, Stuart. Uh, And I think it's one that is is a considerable challenge, is that as you engage the vertical, you're almost required, I think you actually are required to develop a phenomenal level of equanimity with regard to all experience. 
uh, and an equanimity that allows you to see through all of the illusions that so many of our uh, so much of our lives depend and uh, this makes life very challenging and I, I can think of at least three people I know who've uh, encountered uh, difficulty the, the one that stands out for me is Hannah Arendt uh, I wouldn't describe her as a mystic she was a, a very profound philosopher but she had this level of equanimity that allowed her to see things uh, really very very clearly and that got her into a tremendous amount of trouble in her life hmm. because the people that she was very closely associated with but when she came out with the phrase the banality of evil that there wasn't something special about evil uh, they they had a hard time accepting that because of the tremendous damage and suffering of the Holocaust uh, and they couldn't accept that there wasn't something special or really bad about evil it's, it's interesting that you bring that topic in because I started reading a, uh, a book uh, uh, referred to by a mutual friend of ours that uh, and I don't remember the title's a little odd it's by a Polish author and, it, and it's a psychological study of pathology uh, and um, he addresses that point and he says that what influenced him in terms of the way to think about the horrors of pathology. He, he was Polish during the communist period, so, so basically he was an intellectual who was basically watching this horror show unfold at the, you know, sort of the intellectual level. And he, he described that he'd read about a, um, a researcher in the Amazon who, uh, you know, at one point when he was going to the jungle, felt this uh, creature land on his neck and start to like uh, bite and suck his blood, and his uh, his response was to very carefully, gently remove it so that he could study it. He, and, and, and this and this guy said, you know, this this has actually had a very strong imprint on me because I realized if I'm going to study and understand this phenomenon, I have to be removed from the visceral reactivity associated with my experience of it. So as much as I condemn and feel like, you know, when I see these pathological uh, uh, people dehumanizing and, and acting literally like vampires sucking the lifeblood out of a society, I have to step back and look at the mechanics of how this is operating. Otherwise, uh, I'm not going to be able to be effective at this uh, communication. It's a very interesting point, and it also tallies with uh, something that actually a woman in Germany wrote to me recently, that uh, through her practice, she's come to see that to... Uh, well, she's been... Uh, was asked, she's a social worker in Germany, and she was asked to be on the triage board, deciding who gets care in the Omicron crisis. And she said... And she says, I have a terribly difficult time with these uh, with people who haven't been vaccinated because they're using up resources when that would be available if probably if they had been vaccinated uh, and causing a lot of work for a lot of people and so forth and so forth. But she said, uh, it, there's a difference between uh, accepting the situation and uh, one's own values. 
And, and so what you describe is this uh, anthropologist or you know, botanist who's taking this blood-sucking <laughs> insect off its uh, off the back of this neck. He's, he's displaying an incredible level of equanimity uh, not accepting what it does as something you know, that's good for him because obviously it isn't but cutting through his own reactivity so that he can actually see deeper yeah, yeah. and so I, I, I thought it was a wonderful yeah, uh, allegory for um, even the the path the vertical path that we're describing to look at oneself honestly and to see let us say the horror show of things within ourselves that we don't want to admit or confront or the elements in our uh, just our operation that uh, to go deeper you have to be willing to see that stuff from a, a level of equanimity you have to I, I agree with you and that is one such path to the vertical because you see it, it operates in us it's always going to operate in us because of, in part it's because um, part of our animal nature and the only way that the only way forward is to come to a completely different relationship with it and that's the movement to the vertical well I think that's the one of the reasons that the Gurdjieff work focuses so much attention on the body and one's relationship to the mechanical manifestations of the body and and in fact Gurdjieff used used a number of different modalities for that the uh, sacred dances or movements are one obvious example but there's a series of exercises um, as well that that, um, direct attention specifically on the body and and um, I know that he w- he considered that preliminary to any movement towards the vertical is in the way that you're you're describing. So in your tradition, and I know you've of course innovated a bit for for Westerners um, in how to point towards. I don't like I, I don't like you you use the phraseology point to earlier, Stuart. And I like towards better because towards feels a little more um, less point like, less point like, less directed, more in a, in a general direction as opposed to a, a, a fixed point. So, so tell us a little bit about what you encountered, perhaps from your teachers, Tibetan teachers, and then how you may have modified that. Well, basically, it's a modification in vocabulary. I, I would say it's a rather than innovation. I would say it's translation. Okay. Um, and um, a couple of newsletters prior to the one you brought up at the beginning, I wrote about the middle way in the vertical. And the middle way is probably the primary way in which. Uh, you move to the vertical in Buddhist practice. And uh, the definition of the middle way is not falling into an extreme. It's not what a lot of people interpret to mean like going up the middle. It means you don't fall into an extreme. Now, 
there are many extremes one versus many like monism versus pluralism uh, eternalism versus nihilism and uh, order versus chaos Uh, but the one which uh, comes up again and again in Buddhism is form and emptiness and uh, and when you I, I find actually probably the most accessible is sound and silence hmm. uh, when we say oh that sound shattered the silence well that's that's our subjective experience we were listening to the silence and the sound came and now the silence is gone because there's a sound but it's not actually what goes on what goes on is when the sound arises when the vibrations hit we forget the silence we stop listening to it and all of our attention goes to the sound mm-hmm. and it's relatively easy to train yourself <clears throat> to listen to the silence that's in sound because the silence doesn't go anywhere there isn't anything to go and so you listen so you train yourself to continue to hear the silence whatever sound is going on and that changes your relationship with sensory experience in this case the, the sound and that moves you in the direction or toward the vertical that, that's, direction. yeah interesting because I think I think in the um, the parlance of the fourth way I'd, I'd say that that's uh, uh, describing a way of disidentification because it's a movement of attention away from the object and back onto the uh, the knowing the knowing self I'm going to be really precise here okay the reason I say this moves us to the vertical is when you include the silence and the sound the only way you can do that is to draw on a different level of knowing yes and that which is able to experience silence and sound together and that's something that we can actually cultivate and that moves us into the vertical right and that would be I mean again that that, um, other language that has that same kind of directionality is like deepening yes if you say I'm deepening my presence if I you know if I'm more present than less present that seems that that quality is there it's interesting, though. You know, this is a uh, a paradox. I like to see how you unpack this. That <laughs> the language, even though the way we're talking about this, though, is uh, applying measure to the vertical, because we're ta- we're talking about more and less. So, how, how would you? Uh, I, I'm, I'm very suspicious of the grin that has broken out on Stuart's face. <laughs> Well, as well you are. Well, well, I just I just found myself in a cul-de-sac, and uh, fortunately, I, someone else didn't put me there. <laughs> so, so what what is uh, what's the paradox here? Well, the the paradox is that um, again, that seed of transactionality or utilitarianism uh, begins with differentiation of degree or scale, and uh, you know, more or less, better or worse, and and so. Even the language you're using, there's this subcurrent of uh, uh, measurement, good, yeah, measurement or good and bad, or you know, um, 
Uh, well, so why? So maybe I'll phrase this differently. Why? Why in the world would anyone uh, uh, want to uh, go deeper? That that is a very very important question. Uh, because in doing so you discover something that has meaning in and of itself not because it can do anything for you back to the utilitarianism point um yes uh, I mean in a way um to then use you know a metaphor that our teacher used which is it uh, takes gold to make gold um, unless there's already an innate yearning for that meaning this conversation may be meaningless that that the answer to the question is that you're offering a way of being or a, a way of living to use language that you've used in the past about this um, for those to whom they hear that call. Since the advent of modernism in the West, but I would actually trace it back really probably to the invention of money, there has been a shift, more and more shift uh, in attention to the utilitarian, to the horizontal, simply to navigate life. But what I have found uh, in people that I've worked with is that when they connect with something that is meaningful but not uh, not capable of being utilized, uh, they're often they often respond to that like a person who finds water in the middle of a desert. So what I'm suggesting here is that there is a quality of yearning, I won't say in all human beings, but in many, many human beings, for that dimension in life. And so the gold that your teacher is talking about, I think, is present already, but many people are not even aware that it is present in them. And frankly, I think this is one of the functions of art. Mm is to uh, present something that's either so beautiful and not in a trivial sense of beauty, of course, Mm -hmm. or uh, so... uh, that that captures something that resonates with that quality of what you're calling gold here in them and, and actually opens that up. And I think, you know, we've been having this online discussion about shock in art, Mm-hmm. I think that's what the purpose of shock was originally, yeah. but it's moved so far away, it just became shocking for shock's sake or whatever, yeah. or a way of defining I, oneself I, as an artist or what have right. you. Uh, and I think it's, just, it, it's the quality. Uh, for me, and I'm taking this is a fairly extreme view, but for me, the fun- one of the primary functions of art is to stop the mind so that that and open up that which, dimension. Which, which is a true shock, in a sense. A, a, yes, but a, it may happen very quietly. Yes, well, absolutely. Yeah. I, I've shocked us. I mean, all, 
to me, I mean, the fourth way has a notion of shock that uh, comes out of the Enneagram process model of how uh, processes unfold. Mm -hmm. And that shock represents the injection of something from the outside to the interior to allow movement from essentially one level to another level or to allow a process to ascend in some cases or sometimes to allow a process well, to Well, a, a circle can become a spiral. Right. That and so the shock in this case is uh, a, a, an influence from something from the vertical to enable a ascension, as it were, or a uh, from the particular frame of horizontal uh, location that one finds oneself in. It's interesting to hear you say this because what you you described there is what I have come to understand what empowerment is about in the Tibetan tradition. Hmm. It's it's Hmm. exactly that. Interesting. Uh, That that makes a lot of sense that there's a... I mean... Honestly, I mean, that's uh, initiations in many traditions yes. have that uh, effect. and uh, just or, a, or are at least t- intended to have yeah, that effect. I mean, as an aside, in the same sense that uh, uh, we have a crisis of meaning and modernity, we also have lost many of the initiation rights in modernity that... Uh, uh, well, they were regarded as uh, ephemeral when they actually are putting you in touch with what is not ephemeral. Uh, And, uh, I mean, I feel uh, that we have been, well, put it this way, we have not yet come to terms with the uh, advent of modernism and and the, uh, the extent to which it obliterated the vertical in so many people's minds or experience. Uh, and I think we paid for it very heavily in terms of uh, how our society functions. Yeah, and that, that's a, a, a point that I wanted to return to. You know, to use a different framing, when I listen to some modern uh, Advaita Vedanta teachers, uh, and the people that I have a lot of respect for, a good example would be Rupert Spira, who I've had some conversations with. There's a in that model or in that mode of teaching, there's always there's a lot of focus initially on the pointing to the knowing, to pointing to awareness uh, as being more fundamental about who you are than the contents of what you are aware of, and that in itself begins to have the effect that you were describing of allowing people to lift up or disidentify with the contents of their experience and but what he doesn't talk about so much is um, you know once you have that habit down there's this whole other part of the practice which is tantric in nature and that tantric practice is how do you bring that knowing back into life or how, how do you bring that knowing back into the horizontal that's not my understanding of tantra, but that's well. That, that's so. This yes. may be my uh, gloss on what he's saying, but it's, it's it's like how do you when you have when you have access to that uh, the intuition of the emptiness of self or the intuition of the knowingness as the self? How, okay. What does it mean to bring that into life? And and this gets into the point that you're making because 
there are consequences in the, our lived experience in the horizontal for being disconnected from the vertical. Yes. And there are also consequences from being disconnected with the horizontal. Yes, to be sure. But that's that's. But I, I think the the my understanding of the tantric path, at least as I'm maybe uh, recreating it, is that in fact it's a uh, bringing the two together. Now, now that I'm going to go over, but before we go any further, Rob, why are you so quiet today? Oh, I'm uh, I'm waiting to bring up a topic uh, to go back to a topic that you. Uh, um, okay. Uh, broached earlier, and um, I'm biding my time. <laughs> I'm I don't want to interrupt this. Yeah, okay, this, no, uh, enough, well, let's finish this cycle. Yeah, and we'll, yeah, yeah, we'll, yeah. Uh, uh, the my understanding of tantra is that uh, the word uh, in Tibetan, anyway, could be translated as continuity, hmm. and the word tantra itself. Uh, comes from the, uh, and I never can, uh, you have the two kinds of strings in a loom, and there's the one that goes back and oh, forth. The warp, the warp the and the weft. Yeah, so, so it's the weft that we're talking about, which is the stationary one. I think it's the weft, is it? Yeah, so it's the, this is refers to the warp then. And it's the idea that there's a continuous thread of awareness and don't worry about the ontological implications, uh, just a way of talking. Uh, there, there's a, an, a non-conceptual awareness present in all human experience. And Tantra is about getting in touch with that. Mm-hmm. So it's a very much a movement to the vertical. Now, the point that you're talking about, I don't think is exclusive to Tantra at all, in that whatever the tradition uh, whatever the form of spiritual practice, you come to this, uh, say, if I use Buddhist terminology, this uh, experience that I don't exist the way that I thought I did. And maybe even that the world doesn't exist the way that I thought I did. And, and certainly Carlos Castaneda refers to that very explicitly in Don Juan and so forth. And, uh, and then the question arises, okay, how do I live in that knowledge? Because uh, everything presents itself as having to be dealt with, and you're going, yeah, but there isn't anything actually here. So uh, there's a, there are terms for this in the Tibetan tradition. Uh, one is uh, called is Tulshuk. Uh, one, another one is uh, Lamkir. And I was trying to figure out how to translate these. And it was terribly difficult to find a way to talk about these without lapsing back into the transactional. Because people, uh, some people would say, and I used this at various points in my own career, of talking about, okay, how do I use this spiritual or mystical or whatever uh, perspective in my life? But that's a transaction. That's a utilitarian point of view. And, and then the, the flip side of that is, how do I use my life to deepen my spiritual experience? But again, that is a utilitarian. And so I struggled with this for a long time. And the phrase I eventually came up with is living practice. 
and, and so your life becomes your practice and your practice becomes your life but it, it, not in any kind of glib sense in a very profound sense you live you live your experience and you find a way to do so and that, that can be quite problematic because mm-hmm. uh, it, it doesn't always flow smoothly uh, to, to, indeed yeah and you know and there's a long history of teachers I mean Milarepa is held up as one of the great uh, mountain hermits of the Tibetan tradition but if you read his biography he was assassinated he was poisoned by a monk who was jealous of the attention that he was getting because he uh, was a, a practicing hermit and not a disciplined scholar <laughs> uh, and there's many many instances in Islam in Christianity I don't know about Judaism uh, but other traditions where this is this has been the case uh, but the, the what I think that the real challenge is is how do you I mean, we, we have to pay attention to the horizontal. I need to put food on the table and have a place and things like that. So there is a certain self-interest in that. You can't get away from that. But what I think the important thing about the vertical is it invests everything you do on the horizontal with a different level of meaning. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I think people are seeking, something that gives life meaning which is not simply about exchanging things with other people. Hmm. I mean, I, I'm, I'm. What's running through my head is, uh, in response to this very last uh, point you made, Ken, is that um, some, I think, mystics um, might be said to focus their attention on what might at first appear to be a transactional relationship, but it's one where they are giving their attention. It might be giving uh, uh, the healing arts um, or, some, or some, 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 some living practice of generosity that is not about getting something for themselves as a, as a direction to to inject the meaning that they seek to find um, at least or some form of meaning that they seek to find it's interesting that you say that in Confucian uh, China a well-rounded person had a business or participated in business in some way to provide for them and their family. Yes. They had an artistic pursuit, whether it was poetry, calligraphy, uh, painting, sculpture, whatever. There's some. And they had a healing practice of some kind, which they practiced for exactly that thing. It was to be able to provide that with people. Mm. That is what constituted a well-rounded person Mm. in uh, Confucian. And I always thought... That was a really good way of looking at things. I can't say that I've really developed a healing practice, but that's it's, it's an idea that I've hmm. kept active in my own life. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly haven't had it as a, um, a particular goal myself, but on the other hand, I work and spend a lot of time, uh, most days, in a spiritual bookstore. I have done that for close, getting close to 20 years now. And, and one of the things that I engage in quite deliberately is when someone comes in and is in some has a question that involves suffering or distress and they're looking for a book perhaps or not necessarily a book it might be an amulet or whatever 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 direction and and but they're asking and 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 I and and I have deliberately cultivated the capacity to respond creatively to those requests. In a sense, that's that's healing. I hadn't thought of it exactly well, that way. But your, your work with uh, in the bookstore, and I know that it is not your form of livelihood. You're just, try, <laughs> just trying to keep it afloat. Uh, it, but it's something that when I, I came to understand what you and Stuart and Jim were doing here, mm-hmm. uh, it's a form of service to the community. No and and yeah. the, a healing is a form of service. So you have an mm-hmm. artistic pursuit, a service component to your life, mm-hmm. and a okay. uh, and the means by which you actually stay alive. <laughs> and you know, and that just makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. it does, and and it's a nice balance of all of these elements, and and it, and, it, and it does. Um. It's interesting because it's it's you know the artistic pursuit for most of us we're not going to be superstars um, you know for me with playing uh, shakuhachi I don't yeah you know, it's the process or the deepening that's important it's yes. not it's not the uh, outcome or the um, uh, and that you see is moving you away. From uh, it, it, you're approaching it as, as the vertical rather than the horizontal because when you're yeah, and I'm going to be a superstar, you're looking to have a reputation, a source of income, and, and be somebody in that world. It's totally different. Yeah, there's another metaphor that comes up that ties back to what we were saying earlier, um, which was in my work with my teacher for Shakuhachi, so much of the attention is on movement within the body and very little attention on uh, repertoire. And so I've played a small repertoire over and over again for uh, over 20 years. And I have friends who follow their shakuhachi uh, uh, training traditions, and they're very focused on repertoire. You know, they're very focused on... And I, I, that, to me, is like the horizontal in uh, <laughs> uh, playing, because I, I collect all these different pieces, so I can play all these different things, and isn't that interesting? Uh but, and, and won't I get lots of attention? Yeah, that, attention in, in a way. And, and, and they, they may find that satisfying, too, and not have pretensions to be great players either. But it's just it's the focus is on the what as opposed to, you know, this thing that I find vastly more difficult, which is, like, really foundationally changing habits of body and habits of how I inhabit my body. Well, one of your, one of your colleagues... Um, once asked me as you guys were preparing for a performance in a Buddhist temple in Japan, uh, he's, uh, you had left the room, Stuart, and um, and he said to me, "So my wife 
can't stand to listen to my playing shakuhachi. And a part of the reason, I think, is that it's the same, it was the same repertoire over and over and over again. So, so, so he asked me, how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you stand it? <laughs> why, why, why are you here in Japan with us? <clears throat> His wife was not. Um, and um, why can you listen again and again? And, and I had to reflect that um, at first it was there was an irritating quality to over and over and over again and it was i wasn't even i wasn't doing it somebody else was doing it and yet it was in in my presence and i and i came to i came to observe through watching the interaction between you and your teacher that that almost all of it was about the the, the um the repertoire was irrelevant almost almost entirely it's all about the direction your teacher pointing you to direct your attention in different ways, mostly in the body, although not just in the body, also in the, in the space. And when I grasped that, then it was really interesting for me, and I didn't have a problem at all. It was like your listening changed. Yeah, yeah, that's a, good, that's a, that's a nice phrase. Which is back to the uh, metaphor you used earlier about listening to silence. Yeah. So, if you guys are agreeable, I want, I want to bring up the topic you, yeah. you uh, mentioned earlier, Ken, and that was this discussion of art. And um, you're referring to a, uh, to a conversation between the, the three of us and others um, online recently about shock and art. There was a piece that you um, circulated, and lots of lots of responses. and And you mentioned um, just as a throwaway, almost beauty. I know you don't think of beauty as a throwaway, but but you were focusing on the on this subject of shock. But I want to get into the beauty here, and um, and what. What was coming up for me was the the way that I hold appreciation for beauty when I read a novel, say, or a poem. So I'm not look, I'm not thinking about the visual arts at the moment, um, which for which presumably some of the uh, principles I'll, I'll raise here um, would apply as well. But but really. I experience an expansion when I come to appreciate beauty in a novel, say. I experience an expansion that holds all the contradictions in the story in an imaginal space. And so I was wondering how you would characterize the arising of imagination or if there is a connection to the arising of imagination with the cultivation of the of the vertical because i because and i'm bringing it up precisely because because the the um, the experience of of holding 
this complex and often messy beauty is um, is something that, that I deeply um, I deeply value, and I and um, I wouldn't say I seek it out exactly, um, but I I hold it in my in my awareness um, with great um, appreciation. Now, I've never thought about this before, so this is good. All off the cuff. <clears throat> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> uh, I think that uh, imagination is both the path and a result of a relationship mm. with the vertical. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> the word imagination is, is, uh, is somewhat poignant for me <clears throat> because not that long ago quite a few uh, quite a few years now but you know we're not talking about 20 or 30 years more like somewhere between 5 and 10 mm-hmm. okay I was reading a book um, by Ursula Le Guin, which is basically a collection of her talks at workshops and writings about writing. Mm -hmm. And she was saying that the function of storytellers in the society is to... uh, cultivate imagination in people and she said when a society I can remember she says a society or a culture but when a society will say Mm -hmm. uh, loses its imagination it's in a very bad way yes and then she said and when a child loses its ability to imagine or its imagination it's in a very bad way and when I read that, I went, oh, my God. Because I recognized that I had lost my relationship with imagination. Hmm. And and I couldn't remember when. Hmm. In fact, I've never been able to trace exactly when that happened. Mm-hmm. I know I, I, can, I have memories from my child when I had a lot of imagination. But there's a long period in say the middle of my life where <clears throat> even though I was studying all of this you know extremely imaginative work and you know deities and mandalas and stuff in Tibetan tradition uh, that uh, I can't really say that my imagination was alive and, and I, I can actually say with some honesty that my uh I was aware that one of the reasons I stopped pursuing mathematics as a profession is because I did. I felt that I didn't have the imagination hmm. that high-level mathematics required, hmm. uh, and because you, you really you need it. Uh, and uh, I'll take your word for it. Well, I, I think Stuart understands what I mean. Hmm. Uh, the uh, 
so so I, I, I not, as I just said, you know, I got I got I got to get this restarted somehow. I mm-hmm. can't remember it, but uh, but it, it's actually not fair to say what uh, what had happened is the one area where I had retained it was in writing. Hmm. And I I would attribute that in no small way to uh, having read Wittgenstein in my early 20s, The Philosophical Investigations, hmm. in which he, uh, reading that, moved me from uh, regarding language as a way of representing the world to lang- uh, regarding language as a way of tool uh, for expressing things. Okay. Uh, so it's a toolbox rather than a paint uh, a paint set. Got it. And, uh, and that, that's been uh, very important. But when I uh, moved into business consulting, uh, it became very clear uh, that because of my training, I saw things in a different way. And I, I became respected as a consultant because I was the one who asked all the really dumb questions. The, the questions that people had forgotten to ask or forgotten about because they'd been so involved in the day-to-day stuff. And I'd say, like, why are you doing this? And they wouldn't have an answer. Or why are you doing it this way? Why don't you do it this way? And, uh, so... I think that uh, imagination is something that's very important. And one of the things, and I've mentioned this to you before, that I feel about uh, where we are as a society is that I think our society has, to a great extent, lost its ability to imagine uh, and, and, and doing great things and being inspired by doing great things. And it's... Uh, and I mean really great things, not just inventing new things. Uh, it's uh, so. I think I say that it's a, a route to the vertical, because I, I think it's important to back up a step here. We use the word truth primar- primarily in our society to. Re- to refer to something that can be objectively verified. Got it. Okay? But when we move into the vertical dimension, we actually re- use truth more akin to the way that it's used in poetry, say, uh, or painting or sculpture, where you see a work of art and it rings true. Music is a good example. Music is a very good example. But it's just something that... uh, Something just goes... You know, I mean, you can see me going like this, but I'm also doing the vertical dimension right in this, just as I bring my hand down, because it's that something right at the core which extends up and down. That's how we experience it in in, in a strange way, even though I'm talking about a metaphor. And... uh, That is the quality of art that I th- that it's it's not about representing what's out there. Mm-hmm. It's about presenting something that puts person in touch with that vertical quality in themselves. 
So that's why I say it can be a path into the vertical dimension. It can, uh, and I think there are people that have seen a work of art or heard a work of art and devoted themselves to spiritual practice after that. Maybe not immediately after, but something that's echoed around inside them for a while. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and certainly, spiritual practice has allowed people to appreciate works of art in a way that they could never before do that. Because as you move into the vertical, you necessarily see and experience things in a different way. And you say, oh, that's what that artist was trying to convey. I never saw it that way before. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a very close relationship between the two. Is this an answer to your question? Or have I been it is. No, no, no. It, it, it is. It's interesting. Um, <clears throat> first thing I'll, I'll just parenthetically mention is that the um, novels I had in mind when I asked you the question, were precisely the novels of Ursula Le Guin, oh. and I and I've read the the essay that you, uh, and I think that she even wrote about this in more than one essay. This point that when imagination dies in an individual or a social group, then um, a, a fundamental piece of life is gone. Yes, and. And I and um, and I deeply appreciate that. It, it's also funny to me uh, um, because um, I, uh, for for a number of years, many years now, I've before I go to bed, I do a, I go into our meditation room and I uh, do a set of practices and and as and over time, I would let myself. Um, adopt new practices that seemed to be <laughs> imaginally uh, constructed for me and one of those one of those things that has been the, one of the more long lasting features is just as you were gesturing a few minutes ago with your hand in a vertical up and down direction in front of your body um I have this um, practice now of, of uh, sending energy from my hara down into the earth and up my spine through the crown of my head to the stars and then returning it, twisting it around in a vortex at the hara and then re resending it in, in those directions. So, um, uh, and it's, a, it's of course imaginal you know, that practice, but it has become a center, something that, something that, a, a central um, activity that I engage in. And it's not because I get something from it exactly. Sometimes I don't, I really don't feel like doing the whole, the whole damn meditation thing in the evening, but I do it any, anyway. And um, and the experience of allowing the the energy imaginally summoned or um, instigated to move through my body is is really interesting to me. And and I don't have a as I say I, I, it arose as it were spontaneously. Um, and I don't have 
a justification for it, except insofar as it seems to um, feel an appropriate thing for me to do, given the commitment that I made to myself and my teacher in 1978 to um, to focus my life, as you were saying earlier, on practice living or, or living practice. So to me, the imaginal <coughs> is has been has come to be central. And partly I had to find it, I think, I'm reflecting on this, you know, in the moment here. I think I started off not having that relationship. In the, in the Gurdjieff work, there's, there's a misunderstanding, in my view, there's a misunderstanding that imagination is bad because you're not putting attention on your body and, your, and the present moment. What's called imagination refers to something, and then I think they have other words for what you're describing. Right. So, so that's right. But, but what I'm describing is my understanding yeah. 40 years ago <laughs> of what imagination was. And I've, I've had to come to a different relationship to that word and then to, the, to practices associated with it um, to to um, engage it and yet I want to go a little further questioning you here about the aspect of beauty so so when I, you, I, I've read some of your books I'll compare um, in a sense um, or, or place next to um, uh, my reading of some of your books with some of the books of Ursula Le Guin, and not just the uh, novels and uh, uh, fiction, but but also some of the essays that, uh, and one of which you referred to a moment ago, and 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 I often find, as I was saying earlier, my capacity to hold something that is not perfect but beautiful nevertheless um, in, in a fashion that that makes my awareness enlarge or, or invites my awareness to enlarge and I'm wondering if there's something from your training and tradition that um, you, would, you would point to in a similar way not really from my training and tradition because my training was in the Tibetan tradition and their aesthetics are very, very different. Uh, do I find... I, I do find really good quality tanka painting. There are, there are instances that I've seen which are quite phenomenally beautiful. Just as an aside, that's a great example of having the same form, but just realized so differently by a master versus a student that that the only direction you can go is in. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. I've seen a few such uh, pieces, and there's like... uh, The... 
the, the, the piece that stands out for me uh, is the statue of Guan Yin that's in the Nelson Atkins Museum in Kansas City, Missouri. That's the reclining or uh, no, the, uh, right, repose, right? It's, it's a Guan Yin uh, in the uh, posture of uh, royal ease. And it's, it's something that is seen on many, many book covers and yes. things like that. Uh, I've always thought it was extraordinarily beautiful. And when I was crossing the country, driving across the country uh, in 2012, yeah, I made a point of going, even though I needed to be in Toronto at a certain time, I, made a, I, ha- I figured I had just enough time to detour through Kansas uh, City than take the most direct route. And I was able to spend two hours at this museum. And I said, where is the statue? And they said, it's in this gallery. And uh, so I went there and I could see it. As soon as I got to the door of the gallery, there's a field of sculptures. And at the far end, behind an iron grill, there is this one statue. It's life-size. It's carved from a single tree trunk, except for the one arm that's extended. Uh, It's set very nicely, almost in its own chapel. Mm with a fresco of Amitabha's Pure Land behind them. So they've done a very good job that way. But I just stopped at the doorway uh, to the whole gallery, and and then I just walked through. I didn't even look at any of the other sculptures and took it. They had a little bench in there. I spent almost all of my two hours just sitting there looking at it. Uh, It was... uh, and most of the time I was uh, crying uh, and I was crying for two reasons one I think it is one of the most remarkable sculptures that has ever been created I put it easily if not in a higher class than David Michelangelo's David, which I think is a phenomenal piece of sculpture. I've seen it in person. But it's, uh, but this is uh, at, at least at that level, if not at another level, as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. And that may be for the second reason, is that Guanyin uh, is the Chinese word for Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, which is one of the central themes in Tibetan Buddhism, Jinrei and so forth. In Japan, it becomes Kanon. Uh, and this statue not only is an extraordinary work of art, it also captures the Bodhisattva ideal of a person who's come to be able to experience whatever arises in life and be in consummate peace at the same time and is there available to all that might need help. And so, so it was, to me, just an astonishing embodiment of the bodhisattva ideal, which has been a very important theme in my own practice. And I'm, I'm not, I'm, I told people, you have to go here at least once in your life. And people just shake their heads and shrug it off. 
Uh, but I'm, I'm fully determined to go and see it again. So I'm basically, I'll probably go after the Omicron wave has passed because uh, I want to see it again and I have a friend who I want to see it. But uh, I, I, th- I think it is a mandatory pilgrimage place for anybody who's practicing Mahayana Buddhism. <laughs> And uh, I mean, I, that's how strongly I feel about it. But it is the, to me, it is the quintessence of the spiritual and, the be- and beauty together. Uh, I just think it's phenomenal, and uh, and so I think beauty has that power to move. Uh, there are things which a lot of people regard as beautiful or striking, which don't don't strike any chord in me. And there are other things which I find, uh, sometimes quite simple things, uh, which I find astonishing, uh, really beautiful. And I would say that the, in, maybe not in all cases, but in the vast majority, it's because there's something about the peace and the way I connect it, connect with it, that is a movement into the vertical. And that, to me, is almost a criterion for beauty. Hmm. So that's an, that's interesting. That's an interesting statement, um, um, because I mean I, that, that that can be a woman's dress. Sure. You know. Yeah. know, it can be almost anything. It can be a poem, piece of music. Uh, it's why I. The, the uh, of Beethoven's Nine Symphonies, uh, the Ode to Joy is, you know, the Ninth Symphony is magnificent, but it's the Seventh Symphony that really yeah. speaks to me. That, that is funny because I would have said that too. There, there's a, a long discussion in the Gurdjieff work about objective art and mm-hmm. the um, definition of objective art is something that will almost mathematically create the same effect in a person uh, you know for people at the same level of being and so when you describe a piece like the uh, Fan Yen in the Kansas City Museum as you say someone who's on the Mahayana path it will very precisely convey something and something very objective and uh, not subject to our moods uh, but something very real and precise and that that is what he would call objective art mm-hmm. uh, okay that's interesting use of the word objective yeah that, that, I mean that's yeah his I, I think his sense of subjective art was you know art ah, that's related to personality and uh, you know the the, it's it's like the, the, the vagaries of uh, of the horizontal. <laughs> yeah, or the or the uh, you know the explosion of the subjectivity of the artist on on the medium, as opposed to the capturing in the medium of something that of eternal uh, uh, truth. And th- that's actually what I try to do in my writing. Mm-hmm. Is I'm trying to present. I'm trying to write in such a way that when people read, they move to the vertical. Very cool. Well, it seems like in, in the discussion of imagination that um, my understanding of imagination and magical work is in a way to create a container 
by which we're moved in a direction and maybe container is not the right word but created frame in which we're moved in a direction so the, the what Rob was describing as a visualization of um, the stars above and the earth below and the movement of energy from those realms and the circulation of those realms in the body is imaginal but then it invites a movement within ourselves that is a embodying of that and and if that represents something in the vertical realm then we will find ourselves you know more more strongly aligned there many of the tibetan energy practices are based on exactly that principle Mm. that you were going to continue with something on no 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 I'm actually in beauty. thinking about another, but I, 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 I'm mesmerized by beauty. So, <laughs> if you have more to add, please do. <laughs> no, no. I, 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 well, I, have, I have another uh, topic that I wanted to uh, bring up since we have a, a little bit of time left, um, which, it, and it's partly come back to me because I was looking at this material that a mutual friend re- uh, referred us to on on. Uh, 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 psychopathology and it's the question of conscience and conscience figures largely in the Gurdjieff work because Gurdjieff in his long allegory Beelzebub's Tales locates conscience as the way that's available to the modern human being to recapture to use your language the vertical that he refers to it as a genuine being impulse that arises from the absolute or the or the, as you might say the particle of god within us but the so so conscience is it, it is ossified it's covered over but it can be reclaimed whereas uh he describes how other genuine being impulses of uh love faith and hope have been uh uh, uh, irredeemably degraded in the modern psyche, but conscience is still available, and the awakening of conscience is what that what the work is about. I would say that in Gurdjieff's time, conscience conscience was still available. I'm not sure that it is because we have lost to a very large extent the capacity for shame in our society yeah so this this is a very interesting that's uh, an interesting point yeah it's an interesting point because that's why I wanted to ask uh, I mean the uh, Polish writer uh, uh, writing on uh, psychopathology you know identifies that what distinguishes a psychopath uh, even a high you know a normally functioning not not a not a antisocial psychopath but just like a like a business executive psychopath is is the absence of conscience and that uh or the inability to even access conscience whereas for and and these are reliably about four four to six percent of people are in that category whereas for most people there's a um um Something and uh, you know, like a an innate sense or resistance or uh, to acting in certain ways because of uh, potential impacts it might have on other people. Now, I don't want to get into that whether we believe that or not. I'd rather stay with the Gurdjieff idea of conscience as a genuine being impulse. Well, you put me in mind of 
a koan in the Zen tradition about uh, the true man. There's a, there's a true man that comes and goes. There's a, one of the teachers sitting on the throne. He's, he's saying, you know, there's a true man that comes and goes uh, through my mouth or something like that. I can't remember, can't remember the details of it. <clears throat> and he says, um, and the, uh, yeah, he asks people, you know, what do you have to say or can you point to this true man or something like that? And that's the con. And... When you let your mind, when when you let your mind and body sit and grow quiet, then it's possible for a different kind of knowing to arise, uh, and I think that. Arising of the knowing can be experienced in a lot of different ways, but one of them is as if another person has taken form inside you. Except it's it's a form that has no form; it's more of a feeling of form, of, uh, and and uh, gosh, uh, the word to describe it. Uh, It, it, it has no ordinary qualities to it, and yet it it, it feels absolutely true. And I, and I thought, you know, I think this is what that cone is talking about—the true man. And you see the same thing referred to in some of the stories of um, in, the, in the Sufi tradition. There's one story I'm thinking of in particular about. Uh, uh, this figure who appears to this mystic, and he's told, you know, whenever I appear, uh, beat me until I fall into, uh, and I will break up into pieces of gold. And then you're to give that to people. And whenever the occasion arises, then call me again. I will appear, and you're to do the same thing. And it's like this wonderful metaphor of this, you know this inexhaustible treasury which you uncover or come into contact through your spiritual practice which can be given to people freely without any harm to yourself Mm. Uh, and and it's always available to you to do this and it's a very funny story because uh, somebody else thinks there's exactly beating up Sufis to get uh, the, the, this gold. So he goes in and starts beating up the Sufis, taking to court, etc. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, but it's talking about these different levels of knowledge. But, uh, but this uh, conscience has been very important in me, but that's, and that's maybe why I'm linking, linked it almost immediately to a sense of shame which in the Buddhist tradition is regarded as a virtuous emotion. It's something that steers you towards the path. Hmm. Uh, And we're not talking about toxic shame in the sense of uh, addiction and and dysfunction. 
and, and so forth. Right, and, and I, I also <coughs> want to distinguish, uh, for purposes of this discussion, shame from guilt. Yeah, as they say, guilt is what you feel when someone's looking, and shame is what you feel when no one's looking. Oh, I always had great fun when people told me they felt guilty. I would say, I would talk with them and and talk to them about why they were feeling guilty, and and their feelings of guilt. And at a certain point, it was always fair for me to say, so. It seems to me that you feel that you have done something which is shattered the order, the cosmic order of the universe. And they would say, yeah, that's exactly how it feels. And then I'd lean back and say, isn't that a little arrogant on your part? <laughs> and and they would see immediately the connection between guilt and pride. Mm, and nice. that was just tremendously releasing for them. <laughs> yeah, I think the, um, I've heard the term organic shame or, uh, you know, that there's there's a natural embodiment that is not discursive. Yeah, and and it actually is. Uh, you see it in dogs and other animals. You know, it's just that dogs know. Uh, oh, okay, I've done something wrong here. <laughs> you see them trying to hide or something like that. And so, yeah. So, so do you do you, do you? You know, when we think about the vertical, um, how does conscience uh, relate to that? Any time your actions move you out of alignment with the vertical, you know you're out of balance. Now, it doesn't uh, arise as guilt so much. Uh, I'm not even sure you could really say it as conscience. I mean, I, I'm sure Gurdjieff probably meant it in that way. But in, for me, anyway, it is, uh, it's just like, no. Uh, this is not the way to go, uh, and uh, and you know that going in that direction is not going to do any good for yourself or for anybody. So, would you say it's like a a compass to the vertical? Yeah, you could say that. Yeah, because that that that's you know when I you know just use the extreme example again of the psychology of uh, uh, psychopaths, they're completely transactional completely transactional. It's, it's always about getting something, having needs met. Well, it's worse than that. It's a completely transactional and they have to win. Yeah. And whereas whereas uh, the compass to the vertical reminds us of a possibility that isn't transactional. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Rob, you said you had something else that you wanted. Uh, no, but I want to... Um, Make sure that I um, get the last bit out of this of this topic that Stuart has has brought up and and <clears throat> excuse me and so um, I'm, I appreciate that uh, and this was a new idea for me that you raised just a moment ago that that we may now be in in line with Gurdjieff's Point that the teaching changes with the time, the place, and the people, that we now may have left the period when conscience is actually an effective possibility for 
maybe maybe it's fewer people now than it used to be. Let's say an atrophied organ. An atrophied organ. Okay, that's right. Yeah, the uh, the uh, the juice has been taken out of it. <laughs> well, you look at you know. Oh, I mean, you 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 don't have to look far. No. Not just the, not just the political, and yet I and yet what was uh, when Stuart first raised this, I, I was reminded of um, a, a, a man and his uh, two sons came into the store during this last Christmas period um, to get some a present. Uh, presents for their for their for their mother and and for the wife and um, and it was it's it's one of those things that I don't know if anyone else would 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 particularly notice but I'm really sensitive to um, the situation of how you know these these boys were maybe eight and ten something something in that in that in that uh, age range. And and they were lively, energetic boys, but they were totally not inappropriate in any way. In fact, they I mean they they respected the space, they engaged with it with the energy of youth and and the communication between the father and the boys was of a quality that I don't see very much enacted anymore, um, and and so I was wondering. Well, if it's atrophied, I don't think it's entirely atrophied in all. Oh no, all no, people. no! I, I think it's atrophied to a great extent in the society, but not in everybody. No. Yeah. So so I don't, um, you know. Uh, so it's important. It seems to me to. to to, to raise this point. And then I don't honestly know what to do with the observation you just made, which with which I would have to agree, that in in our social relations, as they seem to be emerging through the organs of communication at a mass level, um, is that... Um, um, we've screwed ourselves, in a sense, or or there is a there is a uh, um, a movement that is so unfortunate, so um, destructive that um, I don't know how I don't know how to handle it. I I I, I just um, I don't know how to handle it. Well. There's, uh, I haven't had a chance to read this yet, but uh, someone's referred me to a, uh, someone who's writing uh, about uh, being in a communist Poland. Mm-hmm. And it's the same book. Oh, it's the same book. It's okay, the same yeah. Book. Uh, I, I thought that's who you're referring to. And uh, seeing the society. Uh, you know, I think it's what you said earlier, Stuart. It's juice being sucked out by this uh, system. Mm-hmm. 
you know, we aren't quite there yet, but it's, it's something that feels beginning to feel comparable, you might say. Mm-hmm. We're, we're in this, you know, uh, whether it's big, um, big tech or uh, a big business or uh, you know, the uh, decay of trust in institutions and so forth. It's, it's so, so much of what we grew up with is, is it just seems to be being sucked out or dried up yeah. or whatever thing I think the only I thought about this on an individual level and I, I think we live uh, and embody the ideals which are important to us mm-hmm. and, you know and hopefully don't get killed in the process which is but increasingly it becomes a possibility as time goes on because that's ex- what happened behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, and uh, because I think that's the only way we can uh, be, uh, you know, there are some things that are more important than life, I guess is what I'm saying. And, uh, and, and if we live that way, then we don't regret how we lived and I think that's really important and there is the odd chance that somebody might notice now and then and you can never tell when that's going to happen I remember when I was at university I was staying in a residence this was the end of my first year and the exams were being uh, many of the exams are being written in a very large gym on the, right on the other side of the campus. And uh, it was May, and I was walking over there, and there happened to be a woman that I knew not very well who lived in the, uh, the same, same residence. And uh, walking over, so I said, so you want to walk over together? And she was going to write an English exam. I didn't know this until much later. I was going to write a math exam. I wasn't particularly concerned about it. It was first level, the first year undergraduate mathematics. And I knew that I would probably do fairly well in the exam. So I just enjoyed the spring day uh, and just enjoyed it and was just babbling about how beautiful it was, you know, flowers and grass and blue sky, etc. But, oh... A couple of years later, uh, my wife was I'd, I'd met in that residence and told me that uh, that walk changed the mind of the woman that I was with because she was very anxious about her exam. Mm-hmm. But by the time we got to the gym, just because I was being frivolous and playful and silly and, and just enjoying the spring, she was completely relaxed and she wrote a very good paper. <laughs> so, mm. You know, so we we never know how we actually are affecting other people. Yeah. And so, not to live to affect other people, but to live true to our own values, we have no idea how far that's going to go. And as you as as you say, um, when the uh, <clears throat> when the yogurt will in the in the lake will take. To yeah. refer to another Sufi story, right? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. No, I, I, I mean, I, I completely agree with the um, your 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 basic point. 
And I still, from time to time, wonder how, if there's more I can do. Well, we're children of the 60s. We're stuck with this. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do like the sense you have of, you know, when you try, try to talk about life as practice and practice as life, that... Um, it's non-transactional in the sense that you're not trying to convince anyone of every, anything, but you are offering yourself as an example that might touch other people. Well, you weren't even offering yourself an example. Other people may take you as an example, yeah, different correct. thing. Yeah. But I also, the transaction goes deeper. You're not using life for practice, and you're not using practice for life. It's interesting. I, 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 I do find that... <laughs> Challenging, partly, partly because the I think the aim of the, the or the dictum in the fourth way is to you know use life as food for uh, exactly, but, and, and we have the same thing in Tibetan tradition. Uh, one of the words for this is realize its core meaning is realize a profit, and I just said. No, I want to get away from this transactional yeah. thing. And so what I did was actually an example of what we've been talking about. Life and practice. How do I hold those without one using the other or being used for the other? And then I went, no, you are just living practice. <clears throat> you just put them to, two together without any sense of one being used for the other. So, so maybe I could uh, challenge that just slightly in the sense that, uh, uh, well, uh, 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 not, not in a, a big way. In a way, what you're describing almost is the state of a mature practice. But just like when we're learning anything, like learning to play a musical instrument or learning to drive, there's a, a transactional period in which we are explicitly doing practices and we're, you know, you're developing skills and capacities. Right. Yes, definitely. And so I think there's a transactional phase in a in the arc of spiritual practice. But what you're describing is what it matures into. And you could look at it that way, but I don't think you need to. Okay. I mean, th- th- there is a developmental phase, but I'm not quite sure why you have to use the word transactional. Well, again, it, 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 I'm using the word in the sense that, um, like in the, the fourth way, uh, to use, to bring my attention to my life. There's a uh, explanation for that, or a framing of that, that's transactional in the sense that this is an important thing to do. Why? To, uh, because one, because in that, that framework, uh, it's important to see the true condition of your your life. Why? So that one can um, ultimately be liberated from... Why? Because it is the natural way of being. Now you arrive at the non-transactional for the whole thing. Right. Even the training. So, yeah, you arrive at a non-transactional reason. You arrive at a non-transactional framework for everything involved in the training. Okay. You see? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So, I want to go back briefly to the imaginal, um, because um, 
when when you came in um, and we were setting up, Stuart brought in. <clears throat> I, I beg your pardon. The um, new copy of The Dawn of Everything: A New History of Humanity by David Graeber and uh, David Wengrow. Yeah. And um, and I was and I'm reminded because I was uh, I seem to be obsessing today on the imaginal <laughs> that. Um, and you were the you were the person who put me on to David Graeber's uh, debt, the first five thousand years. Guilty as charged. <laughs> Guilty as charged, and and uh, and I express my gratitude for that. But the point I, I'm 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 wanting to make is, and it's in relation to the what I was just discussing a moment ago about how do we how do we respond to the difficult times that we find ourselves in, and. And I look at that book, and I actually probably, even though I literally have not cracked the book open yet, and it's a big, fat, thick book, I have been paying attention uh, as I have my anthropology training. These are two anthropologists, or an archaeologist and an anthropologist. I've been paying attention to their to the papers they've been doing together as preliminary to this book, talks they've given on YouTube, etc. So I, I probably know a lot of what's in there. And the point I I want to make about imagination is they are, as I understand it, they are creating a a new way to understand human history in such a way that would liberate the imagination of people today who um, who have no hope, and certainly no no previous experience in projecting different ways of of living, even in the transactional realm. Yeah. And and I think um, this is um, this is something that that it seems to me, in the very limited way that I can, and that others can, we can we can offer something to people who are not interested in the. Uh, in the vertical, or or maybe have little um, uh, inclination to to explore it, but nevertheless, um, the 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 work of people who who can imagine something different has something to offer, and 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 in a way that that this discussion of the vertical that we're doing today is 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 a similar. Work, I think. I think so. I mean, the extent to which any sense of the vertical has been eliminated from people's thinking disturbs me a great deal. And I see a lot of the problems in society coming from that elimination. And I would include the the topic of conscience there mm. because uh, I think Gurdjieff was right it was a, a vehicle but I'm, I'm really not sure that it is now, to be fair he said it was uh, ossified back then too yeah uh, and so he remember he just been through uh, the Russian Revolution and exa- uh, yeah fled to Moscow uh, yeah. to Paris and all yeah. of that so uh, so my feeling here is that and I, I suppose I get this from my Buddhist training as much as anything. Um, 
We live in the Sangha was given these codes of conduct, uh, which basically, or let me uh, let me just put it a different way. In in Buddhism, the ordained Sangha were always meant to be examples of what the teachings were about. And I think, you know, as practitioners, that's what we do, is, is we live our lives according to our own spiritual principles as deeply as possible. Uh, and that, that actually can cut pretty deeply into a lot of shortcuts that you know, a lot of us would ordinarily take in life. And, and we'll always take shortcuts, the, the shortcuts that are acceptable to me may not, may not be the shortcuts that are acceptable to you, but, uh, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, the, uh, but in some way, to, uh, without being rule-bound or uh, rigid or anything, those are quite different qualities, and those represent the generations, you know, degenerative forms of practice when you get rigid or rule bound or something mm-hmm. like that we, we live our qualities as, as truly as possible some people may notice okay. and that's it you know uh, the, uh, and, and, it, and be inspired by that and be inspired exactly and in addition if our lives you know, our careers or whatever put us in a position where we can actually influence people and do so, that would be the appropriate responsibility. And I'm thinking of this social worker in Germany who's now Mm -hmm. in a position of doing triage work. And so she does that triage work with the the utmost impeccability. And people say, oh, you can actually decide things about care and things like that without and be a spiritual person. Because most people think, you know, you shouldn't do something like that that will damage your spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's transactional <coughs> utilitarianism, yeah. and it's, you know, and that's not... She's, she's taken very, a great deal of... She's taken very seriously that the aim of spiritual practice is uh, to be able to meet whatever life throws at you without losing yourself. Well, that's a uh, great point on which to conclude the conversation. So, thank you. We can all agree on that. On that one, Dave McLeod, thank you again for joining us on the Mystical Positivism. Well, I very much enjoy our conversations, and I very much appreciate being invited back. So, thank you. You have been listening to the Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Kudnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with returning guest Ken McLeod in which we delve more deeply into the nature of the vertical and horizontal dimensions of life, what this means in the context of spiritual practice, the nature of transaction as a currency of the horizontal realm, how we might relate to spiritual practice in non-transactional terms, and what it means to say that a spiritual path is a way of living. This episode is another installment in an extended conversation that we have been having with Ken over the last couple of years. Ken is the founder and director of unfetteredmind.org, he is the author of Wake Up to Your Life, Discovering the Buddhist Path of Attention, The Great Path of Awakening, An Arrow to the Heart, Reflections on Silver River, and his most recent book, A Trackless Path. 
Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday.